Good. Let's take our Bible and turn to Second Peter. Back in Second Peter, it's been a while since I've been there, so it looks like I have to go over some things to get where I was and where I'm going, and uh, and then I'm probably just going to be looking at a, a just maybe one verse in Second uh, Peter today. But I'd like to read the section, Second Peter chapter two, verse four through nine, and then I'll have a word of prayer. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4-9 through nine. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, which, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your spirit who illuminates the word of God so we can understand it, and also who gives us the aid to put it into practice. I pray, Lord, today we would give ourselves over to you as a living sacrifice, that we would be holy and acceptable in your sight because of your mercy, Lord, Thank you for your mercy. You didn't give us what we really deserved. You gave us your grace. Thank you, Lord. You, you withheld your judgment. And Lord, as we consider a passage on judgment, that you would uh, just impress upon our hearts that, Lord, you will not, nothing is going to pass by your judgment. Everyone will be judged. And I pray, Lord, that we would always examine ourselves uh, as we walk the Christian walk, so we can know where we're at, what we believe, how we're growing, and uh, know that we please you. I pray again, Lord, as we look at this portion of Scripture, you just teach us what we need to learn today. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to kind of back up uh, from where I was because I haven't been in Second Peter for a while, and I, and I just wanted to give a recap. Uh, I, I've been uh, preaching on that the Word of God teaches us that continual growth in the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ will make you more holy and useful. And it will make the church not only more ready for the coming of the Lord, but it will also make the church more discerning in whatever situation it finds itself. The continual growth uh, that the Lord will allow us to have will be seen in the regular transformation of our mind, our will, our affections. And of course, that all comes from Scripture. That's why the first chapter of, of Second Peter, it lays out for us that Scripture is sure, it's reliable, that Scripture is a light, it's illuminating, that Scripture is truth, it is revealing, that Scripture originates from God, so therefore every bit of it's trustworthy. So the Apostle Peter has already confirmed to his readers something more sure and authentic than even experience. He experienced uh, the Mount of Transfiguration when the Lord was transfigured before him, and he says there's a more sure uh, testimony, and it's Scripture itself, where he tells us in 2 Peter 1.19, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention. Pay attention to the Word of God. So the Scriptures communicate to us that, the, that has been ordained by God and given to us by God's authority and it produced by the Lord to enable us to understand what it says because all Scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by God. So the Scriptures are God's for God's true church, and it's the only source of authority that we have. We have no other source of authority, 
So we need to spend a whole lot of time in the Word of God. So the great danger that faces the church these days and in every generation has been false prophets and false teachers. And the spirit of this age, the age in which we live, kind of likes the idea that when it comes to spiritual matters, the matters of truth, they want it to be kind of like fluid. Whatever they want it to say, uh, they don't want to really arrive at truth. So the idea that the Christian message should be kept pliable and ambiguous seems especially attractive to the young people who are in tune with the culture and in love with the spirit of the age and can't really stand very much authoritative biblical truth applied with precision as a corrective to worldly lifestyles and unholy minds and ungodly behaviors. So we have been looking at discernment concerning the threats of false teachers to the church. And there have been several of those in Scripture. Actually, there are six reasons false teachers are a threat to the church. I'm going to go through them again uh, just briefly because I've covered them already. The first one found in verse 1 through 3 of chapter 2, false teachers cleverly teach destructive heresies. They secretly introduce those to the church. So it's, that means that their teaching is very subtle. It can't easily be detected. Also, false teachers deny the God of the Bible. In verse number 1, even denying the master who bought them, that these false teachers are denying the Lord, their creator, who made them, and as creator, he owns them. So false teachers claim to be part of the household of God but refuse to submit to the master of the house, which is the Lord Jesus Christ and his word and his spirit. So they deny their sovereign master in that they do not obey him. Also, they deny the master in their teaching. They adhere to other teachings, false teachings, and incorporate the word of God with all all other things. Also, they deny the master in their behavior, Instead of living a holy, godly lifestyle, they end up living a sinful lifestyle. They are a living contradiction to his life and his teaching. So false teachers, it's not that they didn't know the truth. They knew it, but they turned from it. They're professors of the word. They're professors, but they reject the authority of the creator, and actually they deny his redemptive offer and purchase. They say actually no to the one who has the power and authority. It is not like they were ever genuinely saved. They actually are are apostates, and apostates are not necessarily people who leave just the institutionalized church. They leave the truth and often stay in the church. So false teachers, thirdly, bring certain imminent judgment upon themselves, that God is going to judge them. But I'm going to talk about that more a little later. A fourth thing is that false teachers seduce many to follow their evil teaching and shameful lifestyle. That means that these false teachers are popular. Many, it says in verse number two, follow their sensuality. Many do. And many will derive guidance from these teachers and move outside the church for information and from the Word of God to pursue false ideas, practices, even dreams and visions that they bring into their teaching, which cannot be substantiated at all because it's not examined by the Word of God. So sensuality, that's the reason for their popularity because they appeal to people. They appeal to the base desires that we all have the felt needs of people. And so they advocate the full freedom of the flesh, unbridled living. And they believe by unbridled living, that's freedom in Christ. These false teachers were propagating a wicked and shameful lifestyle centering on mainly 
shameful immoralities. It's all over 2 Peter. They have twisted sexual desires. They indulge in evil pleasure. They commit adultery in 2.14, every, uh, having eyes full of adultery and never cease from sin. So no false teacher is going around carrying a sign that says, follow me, I'm a false teacher. They're not doing that. Rather, they're parading around saying they have the truth, saying, follow us. You'll live a good life and a happy life and a, uh, uh, a rich life if you follow us. Usually, they combine some good with bad to make their propaganda even more enticing. So false teachers believe that following their own lust or desires and showing no restraint over them is actually a sign of maturity and freedom. False teachers, for, for, for false teachers, freedom in Christ is to follow their own sensuality and lust, not to follow the truth. And what does healthy truth lead to? It leads to holiness. It leads to godliness. It doesn't lead to living a sinful life. It could be that you receive the church, but you're the truth, but you're not living it in your life. So you may be deceived yourself. So the lure of false teachers is to bring one, a person, into their world. That is how you can live the best life you can possibly live now. So false teachers actually are feeding the strongest urges of the fallen human nature and that means that those urges are to be wealthy, uh, to be healthy, to be prosperous, which often leads to greed and just the desire for peace and safety and um, to get what you want when you want it. So the highest goal these teachers really offer people is for their followers to pursue the passing pleasures of this world. Because it's all about this world. It's not about what's coming. It's not about the kingdom of God. It's about this world. It's about you and what you can get now. So for them, the evidence of the Holy Spirit, uh, how he influences a person's life is by material prosperity, by mindless emotionalism, by seeking spiritual experiences and supposed miraculous encounters. And if you don't encounter any of these things well, then you don't have enough faith. That's what they conclude. Instead, the real evidence of the Holy Spirit's work is that the believer's growth will be in spiritual maturity, in the practical holiness and godliness, in Christ-likeness, where the Holy Spirit of God actually convicts you of a sinful heart. He actually helps you combat and fight against worldly lust. He actually cultivates spiritual fruit in your lives as you want to live for Christ. It's like the Apostle Paul says, if you are living according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So according to Scripture, someone claiming to be a Christian and a teacher of God if they display an immoral character, it actually invalidates the gospel message, which is characteristic of false teachers and false prophets and those who follow them. So the result and the effect of such godless living is living that is so contrary to Jesus' life and so contrary to the transformative gospel that we have in Christ that it doesn't even look what the Bible's talking about. What should it look like? It should look like chapter 1 of Second Peter. Add to your faith moral excellence, and moral excellence knowledge, and knowledge self-control, and self-control perseverance, and perseverance godliness, and to that brotherly kindness and love. All those things the Spirit of God will produce in the heart of a real believer. A fifth thing, a fifth threat of false teachers is a false teacher 
actually maligns the way of truth or slanders the way of truth. In verse number 2, so the way of truth is synonymous with the word of God in the gospel. Specific truth that leads to true faith in Christ and a godly life. Because these false teachers have actually abandoned the gospel when the world of unbelievers look on the church and see no difference than themselves, and in some case, even worse behavior, what do they conclude? They blaspheme God. That's what they do. That's what it means to malign. It's the, it's the Greek word blasphemeo, all right, to blaspheme God, right? They blaspheme the gospel. They give the gospel a black eye. That's what they do. And so they speak injuriously to defame the reputation of God in the gospel method. They may not say it in their words all the time, but they do it in their actions. They do it in their behavior. That's why you have to look at both doctrine and behavior, their lifestyle. A sixth thing is in their greed, false teachers will fabricate clever false words. In verse number three, it says there that in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. That's the motivation of false teachers. They are, in 2 Peter 2.14, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed. Accursed children. All right, so they're actually trained in greed here. Uh, It means that the heart has been exercised in greed and is one that faithfully practices greed. So greediness has become natural to them. The false teachers have developed a habit capability that they are they do it without thinking. That's just part of who they are. The fa- and they think it's all right and, and that's what you ought to do. So they habitually behave greedily, but they don't recognize that. So they're well-trained in greed, and to keep the money coming in, they will say anything, and they will do anything. See, the danger with the accumulation of wealth or teaching people that you ought to accumulate as much wealth as you can, it often becomes the god of that person because they trust in money for security. They trust in money for happiness. They trust in money for getting things done. See, that's not where we ought to be going. We all need money, of course. Money's not evil in itself. But it's a tool to live life and to use it properly. The Apostle Paul warned, he said in Ephesians 5, For this you know for certain, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So most false teachers today, just as in Peter's day and in every day, allow greed and selfishness to rule them. What is their message? Basically, it's this. God will give you healing and wealth and other material blessings in return for money. Give enough money, and you'll get what you want. So these false teachers bend, fabricate, and yes, even make up words. They lie to you in order to keep the money coming in. Scripture really exposes them here in uh, our passage because by using the phrase false words, it's really the Greek word plastos, a verbal adjective here, meaning in English we derive the word plastic, which, what is plastic? It can be formed and fashioned and shaped and molded in any way you want. That's, that's what he uses here for their words. So they use their words, they twist their words, and even in in a figurative way, it means man-made arguments of false teachers in which they fabricate and make up stuff. They make stuff up. They just pull it out of whatever wherever they want. If they know that it'll get somebody's attention, they'll use it. They are counterfeits to the truth and pass themselves off to be trustworthy, anointed prophets and apostles and spirit-led teachers of God, they are not. According to Scripture, someone claiming to be a teacher of God, if they fail to uphold the Word of God and remain faithful to it, if they fail to do that, 
That is a characteristic of a false teacher or a false prophet. So prosperity preachers have made true Christianity a laughingstock in the eyes of the watching world. And yet, this is the kind of Christianity that's usually sent all over the world. That's what, you go to a foreign country, that's all they know. They don't know anything else. They don't know what sound biblical teaching is or a teacher would be. So however deadly and this damnable heresy is, in the which the word of God is intentionally twisted by spiritual swindlers and snake oil salesmen, surely it's not a laughing stock. It's not something to laugh about at all. So we are, are given the reasons for the threat of false teachers and their doctrine upon the church. It is not easily detected. It leads to hell by the signs of heaven. It denies the master and creator. It caters to the masses of people. It gives truth a bad name, and it condones loose and greedy living. So that means that Christians are called by the scriptures to be discerning concerning what Christian books they're reading, what conferences they go to, what churches they are a part of, what blogs and YouTubes and social media sites they go to. All of that we're responsible for. Sermons online, sermons offline, because all those sermons have many different theological perspectives. Do you know what they are? Are you skilled enough in Scripture to detect when somebody is not correct? Now, they could be good, they can be instructive, they can be edifying, they could be motivating, and many times they are motivational speeches, or they could be bad and destructive and lead one into error, and a constant diet of error can become a defiling influence in one's life in which you will start living according to their teaching. So what are we to do as Christians? You know what we're to do? Here's the admonition of, of the Apostle John. Test the spirits, right? It says in John chapter 4, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Well, how do we do that? We do that by testing their words and compare them with the objected standard of the Bible, the judgment of the Bible. Imitations and deceptions of Satan who is behind these words and these deeds and these appearances and these teachers, all right, is always to mislead people. It's never to help people. It's always to mislead them and even to keep them in bondage. So we need to expose fraudulent teachers, whether they're on the radio, TV, Internet. Because of the speed of communication today and the speed of publishing, error is spread everywhere. You can publish your own book and get it out there to the masses. You don't have to be, it doesn't have to be vetted. It doesn't have to be footnoted. It doesn't have to be anything. It doesn't have to be, uh, you know, saturated with truth or anything like it could be anything you want and you it could be a bestseller and people eat that stuff up today they really do so what do we do we it, it's tricky uh, try to find the best among the good how do you do that the best among the good and the bad however the criteria to examine all teaching is is there we there are some yardsticks we can use uh, just some practical uh, yardsticks, about four of them. Number one, ask the question, is the teaching doctrinally sound? Is it, is it coming from the Bible? 1 Timothy 6.3 says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. See, that's what a person, do we know that? Are we able to do that? See, a teacher must hold to orthodox doctrine. If core doctrines are denied, their teaching should be discarded immediately. If they're promoting salvation by works or denying the Trinity or the second coming or denying 
that there is a final judgment which the false teachers deny right here in chapter 3, if they're confusing the roles of men and women, they're affirming the culture and redefining marriage and the acceptance of the same-sex union stuff, if all that's going on and all that's in their teaching, then they're to be absolutely avoided and not even give them an audience. It's when the person says, I'm looking for a more progressive church. What do they mean by that? They're not looking for a church that holds to the standard of Scripture. They're looking to the church, to a church that looks like the culture. That's what they're looking for. That's what they're saying. So, see, is the teaching doctrinally sound? Also, is the teaching drawn from an accurate handling of Scripture? 2 Peter 1.3, we've been looking at what the Bible says that God gives all things that pertain to life and godliness, and the true knowledge of Christ starts with the Bible and stays with the Bible and continues with the Bible. A life built on any other foundation is destined to collapse. I guarantee that. So teachers who promote building life principles on secular science and psychology and evolutionary views and cultural norms are to be avoided because those are sources that often are brought to Scripture, laid over the top of Scripture, and then interpreted that way. You can't do it like that. We have to take Scripture as it is and interpret everything else out there. Now, it doesn't mean some of those things are not helpful or good, but we have to discern what's helpful and good and throw out the stuff that's not good and not going to benefit us uh, spiritually. It's like the, what the Apostle Paul said in Colossians, in chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according, what, to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Right? So that is something we need to consider. Our third question would be, is the teaching focused on the gospel? Is it gospel-focused? We should avoid any teaching that calls anyone to rely on your own strength to earn God's acceptance, both in salvation and after salvation, but rather resting on what the Father has done for you in Christ and what the Spirit does for us in his work. A fourth thing can be this, that teaching is the teaching rooted in history. Is it historically attested? There's nothing new under the sun. We've been learning that in, in Ecclesiastes. We're going to learn more about that. So when anybody comes along and say they have a new perspective on the teaching of Scripture, don't believe them. Because you know what? It's been thousands and thousands of years. People have died for this word, this book. And it's been affirmed. And the 66 books of the Bible frame the truth delivered once for all to the saints. So we need to stay there. So nobody has perfect theology. Nobody can really say that I've arrived and I know everything. Or we would stop learning, right? But how much error can a teacher hold and still be worth learning from? We are all called to mature in our faith and be as discerning as possible. As it says in Thessalonians, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So, so what two things should happen when we test everything from that passage? What judgment is good and and right, well, we should judge doctrine, all right? We do that by the word of God, and we should judge behavior. Don't look past their life and uh, look at behavior, too, because behavior determines holiness and godliness, not perfection. We're not looking for perfection. We're looking for holiness. We're looking for a desire to want to follow and love God. And we all do that in a messy way, don't we? But you can... You can know it's the direction of someone's life when they're doing it on a consistent, regular way. They're learning the Word of God. They're putting things into practice. They're serving the Lord. They're being part of the church. All right, those are all things we can judge. Now, we should, so we should hold fast to what is good and determine 
whether something is consistent with Scripture or not, and then we should abstain from, from what is evil and turn away from it and just leave it as bad, not helpful, not healthy. Leave it alone. Go on in Scripture. So the great danger that faces the church in these false teachers uh, is that we need to be discerning. All right, False teaching makes it easier for the ungodly to live the kind of life they want to live without being condemned in their conscience. One thing that the Spirit of God does and the Word of God does, it makes, gives us a real sensitive conscience. We're sensitive about our sin. We're sensitive about what's going on in our heart. We really are. And so that's what he does. So we have looked at the discerning the threats of false teachers to the church now. Let's focus our attention in the next portion of Scripture and the main idea here in verse 3 and verse number 4, which is probably as far as I'll get today, is the justice of God. That God is a just God. That is the main idea in right down to verse number 10 and throughout that God is God of justice. So Apostle wants us to know that no one's going to get away with anything. Nobody's going to get away with anything. There's nothing that's going to pass God's judgment at all whatsoever. And so he says in verse number 3, it says their judgment, that's the false teachers, from long ago, that's the middle of the passage, is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So false teachers may feel secure in their message of peace, peace, and think that they are being blessed by God. However... The Lord God is not asleep on his throne concerning what they're doing and what they're saying. He will act decisively and quickly. In fact, the sentence has already been pronounced. So this passage of Scripture is bringing up an endemic problem that we have. And what is that problem? It's that false teachers and false prophets and those who follow them have their eschatology wrong, their end-time doctrine wrong, and their ethics wrong. And why do they have those wrong? Because they don't get things from the source of Scripture. And because of these errors in thinking and teaching, false teachers are leading others down the rose-petal-covered path of destruction. They are blind guides. All it takes is a small twist of Scripture, like believing that there will not be a future coming judgment. Why, what would happen there in their lifestyle? Well, they assume that their behavior will not be called to account at the end. See, that's, if you deny God, if you deny His justice and His judgment, then you know what? Live any way you want. Call yourself anything you want. But it was like Jeremiah the prophet told the king of Israel that judgment was coming by way of the Babylonians. While the false prophets were saying, peace, peace, destruction would not come to the king, Jeremiah could only tell the king and the people what God told him. And what did God tell him? Judgment was coming. Do these things, and it'll be easier for you, but judgment is coming. But how do they respond? They attacked the prophet because he was the face and the voice of God. What did they do to him? They sent him to prison with a bread and water diet. And then they sent him and, and dropped him in a, a well full of mud, and they were going to leave him there with no regard to the word of God nor Jeremiah's well-being. But the facts still remain, no matter even what happened to the prophet. According to the word of God, judgment was inevitable. It did not come, actually it did come just as Jeremiah had prophesied. So many scriptures bear out as to what actually took place. Those were the scriptures read in Jeremiah this morning. I didn't want to read all those, so Khalif did a good job reading them. See, the king and the people just didn't want to believe or receive what God's prophet was saying as true. The historical fact 
bears it out that what Jeremiah prophesied exactly happened as it was written. So God did bring judgment, even though everybody around the king and the people were saying, no, he's not, no, he's not, no, he's not. God says, I am, I am, I am, and he did. So we're faced in our day with the same problem. At this present time, we live in the cancel culture, don't we? The cancel culture mindset, which wants to divorce itself from history, even American history, the good, the bad, the ugly. It tends to ignore, to rewrite, and to cancel it all together. So if you do that with the Bible, biblical history, then you're also going to be in trouble because you're going to say, oh, that's just old stuff from the past. It doesn't really mean anything today. No, can't do that. We've got to go back into the history, right? We've got to go back to what the prophet said. We have to go back to the patriarchs of the church who gave their life for it and see what they were saying and doing and follow them. It was, I believe, Edmund Burke is attributed with saying those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. So that brings me to looking at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse number 3, where again he says, their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep, meaning that God determines to fulfill his justice in the future. From this passage of Scripture, all the justice didn't all come yet. The fullness of the justice or the judgment of God is not yet. It's not now. It's not in his fullness. But someday it will come in its fullness. And everything will be judged. Now this is the third time judgment is mentioned in Second Peter on false teachers who are ungodly. So our passage today really demonstrates that there is plenty of historical precedent in Scripture and in history for God acting in judgment. Therefore, the false teachers and the ungodly better beware because judgment is on the move and it is very much awake. It is not sleeping. It is awake. For that's why he says their judgment from long ago is not idle. It's not asleep. Their destruction is not asleep. God is just withholding it. And he may judge presently, but not in its fullness. And I want you to notice in verse 4 to 10, this is one single conditional sentence. The first class conditional if is used, which assumes the reality of the condition. In other words, it is not a hypothetical if. It's a real condition. If X is true, then how much more Y is true? Look at verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned. Verse 5, God did not spare the ancient world. We could add the if in there. Verse 6, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And 7, if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. And then verse number 9, he concludes... The Lord then knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Now, saying all that, Scripture is actually acknowledging God's righteousness and justice on the people who are reading it, on the false teachers who are denying it. But you know what? Righteousness and justice are all over Scripture. In fact, the English uh, terms righteousness and justice are different words in the, in the English, but in the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament, there is only one word group behind the two English terms, and they both speak of one attribute of God. And that attribute of God is his righteousness and his justice. Both words mean the same. God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance, for, in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. Now, it was Wayne Gruden in his uh, theology who asked the question. The question is, what is right? 
Well, he's, he, he says this, whatever conforms to God's moral character is right. And then he asks another question, but why is whatever conforms to God's moral character right? He answers, it is right because it conforms to God's moral character. See, if indeed God is the final standard of righteousness or justice, then there can be no standard outside of God by which we measure righteousness or justice. He himself is the final standard. There is no other standard. So when Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins, it showed that God was truly righteous because he did give appropriate punishment to sin. So when born-again Christians hear of the justice and the righteousness of God, it should cause us to be filled with thanksgiving. It should cause us to be filled with, with gratitude when we realize that righteousness and omnipotence, his power, are both possessed by God. If they were not possessed by God, there would be no guarantee that justice will ultimately prevail in the universe and it will remain a horrible place. But our God has ultimate power and a character in which he must do what is right and just and will do what is right and just. Now that should be a great comfort to us. It should cause some fear also, but it should be a great comfort. Now that means from the scriptures that justice is part of God's character. If you care to turn to Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, I want you to notice what it says there, right there in the beginning of the second law, Deuteronomy meaning the second law. um, It says there in Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. I don't know how many times you have to say it in one passage that this is who God is. That's his character. And that means that God's justice is declared to be in Scripture incorruptible, impartial, like it says in Second Chronicles 19.7. 7, it says our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or taking a bribe. And then in Psalm 89, verse 14, it is the habitation of his throne. It says righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Everything is built on that. If you don't have that, everything crumbles. See, God's justice is not to be sinned against also in Scripture. God's justice is denied often by the ungodly, where it says in Ezekiel 33:17, yet your fellow citizens say the way of the Lord is not right when it is your way that is not right, the prophet says. See, God's justice is exhibited also in the forgiveness of sins. It's because of the justice of God that we're forgiven. Why? Jesus died for us to satisfy the justice of the Father so we can be set free. So that's part of God's justice. God's justice in redemption, in his government, in his judgments, which we're going to look at in 2 Peter. It says this in Genesis 18.25, Abraham speaking to the Lord. Remember, the Lord was going to take out and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And what does Abraham say to the Lord? Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And he did. All right? And God held judgment, and Sodom and Gomorrah turned to ash because there was no, there was not ten righteous people in that city, just eight, seven. So God's justice also is magnified in Christ's coming. Not only do we see that in Revelation. Not, not, not only do we see that in Second Peter, but it says in Psalm 98.9, before the Lord, he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness 
and the peoples with equity. So, so God's justice works both ways. It works to judge and hold people responsible for sin, and it works, works to rescue people from sin. It does both things. Of course, we know that the only way you can be rescued is to believe in Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now, this brings me back to 2 Peter, and I want you to notice that not only does God determine to fulfill his justice in the future on the false prophets, but if you notice in verse 4, God demonstrates his justice also in the past. He gives three past illustrations, historically. And he says, here's the first one. These are examples of wicked sinners who are judged by God. And the first example And the only example I'll I'll look at this morning is the fallen angels. Notice what it says in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now, notice here, God has final authority over the judgment in the spiritual realm of heavenly beings because heavenly beings are also created by God. So God's, God judges fallen angels who sinned. That is, they rebelled against God's authority and these angels perverted God's way. And God refused to spare them because of the wickedness of their sin. Now, what was their sin? Well, this is a difficult passage of Scripture, uh, there's no doubt. Matter of fact, when you go to many commentaries, they skip over it completely. <laughs> they don't want to make any decisions on it. But I believe that Genesis chapter, Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 through 4, gives us a sense on what's going on, where it talks about the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves whom they chose. And then it says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, literally, the translation of the word Nephilim is the word giant, but considering this passage and its difficulty, there are several interpretations to it. Some interpret the sons of God as these were rulers claiming divine status who were possibly demon-possessed. Or a second one believed uh, that, which I believe may be more in line with what Jude says in his epistle, that the sons of God were mating with human women. Fallen angels came to earth, took human bodies and cohabited with women and produced children who became the heroes and mighty warriors of the ancient times. That these fallen angels crossed the species lines by mating with human women. Now the epistle of Jude, chapter 1, verse number 6, makes the sin a bit more clear when he says this. And angels who did not keep their own domain, and, but abandoned their proper abode, he kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the, great day, of the great day. So this was really a deliberate plan by a company of fallen angels to rebel against God's plan and God's order, that these fallen angels left their own house their own domain, and went after strange flesh by lusting after human women to try to produce a demon-human race that would become unredeemable because angels are not redeemable. So what did God have to do? Well, what did God do to these angels? Look at verse 4. If God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now, I want to say this. You notice that Peter doesn't say anything about anything I just said. Jude says it. 
And the reason why, he doesn't want to take our attention too much off the passages about the justice of God, the judgment of God. That's no one's going to get away with it. In the spiritual realm, in the demon realm, in the human realm, no one is going to pass by God's justice and judgment and his righteousness. Right? And so he, what does he do? He casts them into hell. The word hell here is, for, is uh, to be hurled into Tartarus, regarded by the Greeks as a place of torment and punishment below Hades. It was the darkest, lowest, saddest place anybody could be cast into. And so Hades was considered by the Hebrews as a place of that God would execute punishment on evildoers. And we mustn't forget that fallen demons work ceaselessly to hinder God's redemptive purposes. They're always about holding up things. They're always about coming against the gospel, coming against the church, coming against God's people. That's what their job is, and they're good at it. So, But when you're skilled in the word of God, they have a hard time. You have the whole, more, whole armor of God on to stand up against the wiles of Satan. It's very hard for him to trick you, to dupe you. But I must admit, one, at times he does, because he's good. So we mustn't forget that they, they work ceaselessly to hinder the redemptive purposes of God. These mighty beings are smart, they are skilled, they are organized, and harbor a strong malice toward God and his people, as the Gospel of Matthew when gives us a sense of the demonic power that wants to overcome the church. Where Remember the passage where he says, I say to you, Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. And what, what, did, what does he say? He says this, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Even though the gates of Hades wants to try to overpower it, it won't. Why? Because God says it won't. See, the point in this first example is that God's wrath did not linger or slumber. God's judgment was swift on a group of demons who violated the order of their being in order to commit wicked sins that corrupted the world in Noah's day. That's why God had to send a worldwide flood. He had to kill off that whole group of people. And only Noah and his family were left. We're going to look at that in a, a, latter, a couple other messages. So as our text says, there's no help or rescue provided to these demons, but only darkness in which they await final judgment. Even all this time, they're kept in chains and darkness away from everything, and they're not still being, uh, they're not, it's not done being judged. They're not done being judged. God's going to hold the great white throne, and they're going to finally be cast into the lake of fire, which is the final judgment. And anybody who doesn't believe in Christ will go there with them. But I tell you what, he won't be in charge of hell. God's in charge of hell. God's justice will be in hell in a large way. So in this example... And each one following. You, the reader and the hearer of this letter, are to consider very seriously the judicial activity of God every day in your life. You must examine what are you following? Who are you following? Does your life line up with a holy life, a godly life? Is that the direction that your life is going? Or if you were brought into God's court right now, is there enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? I hope so. That's what we should all be thinking. So are you following your own developed philosophy of life that is not founded on sound biblical teaching? Or are you following the false teachers whose teaching is not grounded on sound biblical hermeneutics, or whoever or whatever you're following. See, the admonition is follow your own spun philosophy of life or the heretical teachers to destruction or turn to God for rescue and salvation. 
That is the message. Even today, our government is trying to take on the role of teaching. They're trying to mandate and tell people how to think, what to believe, what to do. And if you don't do it, you're going to get punished for it. If you don't believe that way, you're going to get punished for it. They're evil rulers today. In this, Not everyone, but many of them are. And they're dominating. And they're trying to mandate morality. And yet, one million abortions a year happen in our country. They promote the LGBTQ community that just follows some sexual perversion. They teach things and espouse things and make laws for things that destroy the family. They even want to make laws to protect pedophiles. There's even a bill right now that was passed in California. Bill number, I think it's Bill 145. protect pedophiles, that if a young person agreed with them, even to age of, at the age of 10 years old, to have some kind of sexual relationship with them, they cannot be brought into court and convicted of anything. That's the day we live, right? We live in this kind of culture. But you know what? All that going on, rest assured, God will judge it. All right, these people are not getting away with anything. Whatever laws they want to make that will uh, not only let criminals go from jail that should be in there, as John MacArthur says, that we've gone from a sexual revolution to a homosexual revolution to a revolution of mindlessness and perversion and insanity. There, there's, no, there's no mind anymore. They, they can't even rationalize what is good and what is bad. Everything that was once good is now opposite, right? Everything that once, once was bad is now good. It's craziness out there. I mean, you listen to things and you say, you have to shake your head. Did I just hear that? What does it say in Proverbs 14.34? Righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. See, righteousness comes from God. And rulers are called by God to fall under his standard of righteousness, even if they're not believers, to do what is right before the people, to make laws that are good and healthy for the community and for the country. So you will not find in our passage demons leading anyone to any kind of rescue, but only to destruction. When wickedness reaches extreme proportions, God holds judgment. God is long-suffering and patient, but there's a time where the sin reaches heaven, he must act, but he will always act in righteousness and justice. If great and powerful angels can't escape God's judgment, how much less will mortal men like false teachers escape? They will not escape. So imminent judgment is only a preview of future judgment. It is coming. And the only way to be rescued from future judgment is to turn to Christ to repent of your sin and what you are trusting in for your own salvation and to believe in God's provision to rescue you from the wrath of God. That's what we need to be saved from, the wrath of God. Christ is the only one who could save you from the wrath of God. But you know what you need to do? If you haven't done it, ask him to save you. Turn from your sin, ask him to save you, and he will save you and rescue you. Because this passage of scripture we're looking at is about two things. It's about judgment, and it's about rescue. And I'd just like to end with this passage, and I'll take this up again in the next message. In verse number 9 of chapter 
2, it says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, some heavy things in Scripture. But Lord, thank you that what we see is true. What we hear is founded in the reliable source of the Word of God. And Lord, we want to be people. I want to be a person who grows in my faith, who grows in the virtues mentioned in chapter 1 of Second Peter. I want to grow, and I want your people to grow, Lord, in godliness and holiness. And I pray, Lord, that they'd keep short bouts with sin. They'd learn to confess it quickly. And they learn to cast themselves upon you and your help every day. Lord, make us into the image of Christ. Deliver us, Lord, from ourselves, from the culture that may be influencing us more than we think, even the social media. And Lord, give us an overwhelming discernment to know when we're not receiving the truth. And I pray, Lord, we would be able to know what that is, Drop off what's bad, keep what is good, and Lord, continue to grow in our faith. I pray this for myself and your people, and I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.